0: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams.
1: And hello everyone, welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for joining us as we wrap up another week. Head into the weekend where we get that extra hour of sleep. We'll fall back. The clocks this weekend. Don't forget that. Well, coming up on our program today, we're going to talk with Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. A lot happening with uh, biofuels right now, including uh, uh, another run at trying to uh, make claims. Some environmental groups trying to make claims that uh, we're hurting the environment by growing more crops for biofuels. We'll get into that debate in a bit. Also, we're going to get the latest on the dicamba decision by EPA. Of course, the news yesterday, EPA will be extending, uh, is extending use of, of dicamba for two more years with some changes in applications and some new rules there, but also there's a difference between the federal rules and, and some individual states and what their decisions will be. We're going to talk with the president of the Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association, Gene Payne, will join us a little bit later on the program to talk about the dicamba situation. But let's start things off with Jarrett Renshaw. He's National Energy Markets Reporter for Reuters. Jarrett, thanks for joining us. Yeah, wow, a lot going on with the energy markets these days, right? You're busy.
2: It's always busy. There's always something going on. That's for sure. But it's a, it's a pretty exciting time on on both the oil and the uh, the agriculture side. There's, there's certainly yeah. a, a lot to report on.
1: Let's start with this biofuel story. You got these. We've got these environmental groups making another run uh, at you know going after. Um, the renewable fuels industry, saying basically that we're because we're growing more crops, putting more land into crops for biofuels, it's hurting the environment, and they've petitioned EPA on this. What do you is going to come of it this time around? Anything?
2: You know, it's always hard to, uh, to distinguish uh, these things. You know, there's there's certainly a lot of reason for these groups, these environmental groups, to be out there to pu- publicize, to to increase uh, their visibility, increase their memberships, and, and to prove to their members they're working on their behalf. So sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the public relations uh, motivation and kind of a real aspirational motivation. So, um, you know, they filed a petition, which is, hey, we want you guys to be aware of this. They're saying it's a precursor to potential litigation. Um, There's no reason to believe that the EPA is going to do anything with the the actual request at this point. And I think we'll just have to kind of see – how serious they are um and, and if they do follow through with some litigation i think i think at that point i think it, it garners more attention in terms of what is the real outcome
1: uh some news uh we we're looking at a big ethanol producer cutting back uh on on production uh, what's going on there
2: yeah i mean uh you know the uh it's a it's a pretty bearish market for ethanol, and thats and I think that's an understatement. I think uh, there's a lot of pain out there. The margins are are, are, are bad. Uh, inventories are high. So Pacific Ethanol, in their earnings call yesterday, said they're slashing by 10% um, their production rates, and that is to try to bring down these inventory levels. And I thought one of the more interesting things was that, you know, he acknowledged that the other companies are doing it, but he said it's not enough, so I think, you know, the, the he believes the remedy to at least the current situation in part is, uh, you know, to kind of have these economic run cuts help bring down the inventory and drive up margins. Um, but now there's some structural issues there that uh, that are not just market-related. And I, I think, uh, you know, you have the export to China. Uh, I think there was some expectation. Well, I know there was some expectation of kind of more robust export growth that we're not seeing. And, uh, you know, the small refining waivers, you know, it's hard to tie it to every little thing, but I think it's certainly have an impact on the, the price of ethanol. Um, and and, and, and uh, so we haven't seen too much of a demand destruction, at least, you know, in, in the numbers, but certainly uh, there's, there's, there's certainly people out there who believe it's having uh, an impact on the actual price of ethanol. And, and, and so that's certain margins as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's still going to be a brutal few months six months, who knows, um, until
1: we, we get out of this cycle. We're talking with Jarrett Renshaw, national energy markets reporter for Reuters. Jarrett, what's your take on EPA's announced timeline for handling the uh, rule change for E15 sales uh, in the summer? It looks to me like they're cutting this so close that there's a good chance it won't be ready, it won't be done by June 1st.
2: County is one of the people that were surprised that it was going to take to February. I, You know, I thought uh, when they came and did that announcement that it was kind of ready to run and that they would even put it out before the actual election to kind of double down and, and, and improve their commitment. Um, so it's certainly a level of disappointment in the biofuel community that they're waiting until February, because like you said, I think that does put into serious doubt whether they can get it up and running before the summer season. And frankly... You know one of the issues that 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 there's a logistics issue, and you know you're not going to people are not going to you you'll see a lot less incremental growth with that much little lead time than if you had something in place months before the summer season um, where people can install the pumps or do the things that the biofuel community hopes. So I, I you know given even if even if they weren't able to do it, I think you know the, the incremental growth that the, the biofuel industry was hoping to get. I think is dampened by the fact that you're, you're going to get the role approved maybe right as the summer season kicks in, maybe a little bit after that. And So I think that that, that is a serious issue, for, um, and I don't think it's going to get changed. The best understanding I have as to why February is that, uh, you know, they coupled it with these trade restrictions, and that's a much more naughty, legally complicated issue, um, and... I don't know if they were ready to to put that out right now. I think they're just they're still working on that part. Um, that's my best understanding. I, I don't know whether that's true or not, but that 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 has been conveyed to me by several folks.
1: Meanwhile, what uh, what is going on with the oil industry that we should be uh, keeping an eye on?
2: You know, it's really all about exports right now. You know, we have uh, the U.S. is just swimming in crude oil. We're we we have more crude oil than. Than our refiners in the U.S. can can process, um, and it needs to get somewhere, and um, and so we're, you're going to see continued uh, building out of the infrastructure for for oil to get these uh, to get the crude oil from you know West Texas and from North Dakota out into coastal ports, and I think then you'll see some build-up of port infrastructure, and and I think that you know the U.S. is well positioned for a you know a, a real bullish run on uh, on crude oil here and uh, you know the refiners are, are the biggest beneficiaries right now because you know this crude oil that's in North Dakota and West Texas is is, is uh, locked in they can't there's, there's there's more production than there is takeaway capacity that puts uh, pressure on prices down so US refiners are buying this crude at a discount and uh, their, 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 their run rates are as high as ever. We're, we're processing more crude, making more products than ever. So it's uh, somewhat, of a, somewhat of a golden age here for uh, refiners, and I think, they're, um, I think that's likely to continue in well into next year and, and beyond.
1: Now, always interesting when we're talking fuel, that's for sure. Good to talk with you, Jarrett. Thanks a lot.
2: Hey, no problem. Take it easy.
1: Jarrett Renshaw, National Energy Markets Reporter for... Reuters. All right, up next, Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. His take on these uh, moves by environmental groups trying to uh, blame uh, the renewable fuels industry for environmental issues, saying we're harming the environment by planting more crops to make more biofuels. What does Jeff Cooper say about that? We'll find out next on Adams on Agriculture.
3: We talked to some of Billy Sutton's neighbors, people who have known him for years. Here's what they had to say.
0: The Billy you see on TV is not real Billy.
3: His folks
4: ranch down the river bottom.
3: We're two miles
2: apart, so I know.
4: He is a Democrat and he tries to pretend he's not. People can't see it because they're being told something else.
2: Senator Sutton will campaign as a moderate Democrat and then turn around and govern as a liberal.
4: We know that's what he is. He's gonna appoint a cabinet full of people who do stand on that platform. What he believes depends on who he's talking to.
2: Billy says one thing and then appears to mean another.
4: And he doesn't stand up for our values.
2: This is a guy that, in his own words, was thrilled to support Hillary Clinton.
4: He said that she has American family
3: values. She has no family values that we have.
4: You're voting for a liberal philosophy, and we don't need that in South Dakota.
3: Democrat Billy Sutton, what he believes depends on who he's talking to.
2: You can't trust Billy.
3: Paid for by Christie for Governor. On road or off road, you'll find the FS lubricant you need from our full line of premium
5: quality products. At FS, our lubricants use the highest quality base oils and latest additive
1: technology to meet and exceed most manufacturer's specifications. Advanced protection against wear ensures you'll get maximum value from both your lubricant and equipment investments squeeze every bit of performance out of every piece of equipment you own. Let the FS energy specialists help you go further. Go further with FS. Visit gofurtherwithfs.com for more information.
6: What if you had a medical emergency away from home? What you need is mobile help, America's premier mobile medical alert system. Most systems only work at home, but with mobile help you get help outside the home with coverage nationwide on one of the largest cellular networks at the press of a button.
7: I press the button and lo and behold the emergency came within minutes. Mobile Help did save my life. No question about that.
6: Call Mobile Help now for a free color brochure. We'll send you everything you need including the base station, the patented mobile device, the waterproof pendant, and wrist button. You can also add the fall button that automatically detects falls and signals help. Call today and receive a risk-free 30-day trial. There's no equipment to buy and no long-term contract. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free emergency key box with your planned purchase. Remember, Mobile Help keeps you safe coast to coast. Call 8 800-930-6137 now for your free mobile health brochure. That's 800-930-6137. Again, 800-930-6137.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams
1: interesting comments we just heard from Jarrett Renshaw, National Energy Markets reporter for Reuters, talking about the oil glut, the surplus we have right now. Makes you wonder why our gas prices aren't lower than they are. Of course, you can get lower prices when you buy uh, those higher blends of ethanol fuels at the pump, and of course, a big... uh, uh, push right now to get those more available to motorists across the country. Let's talk about that with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Lower prices with those higher ethanol blends, right?
5: Well, that's right, Mike, and thanks for having me. And and as you probably know, ethanol prices today are 60, 70 cents a gallon less than gasoline prices. And so obviously when you blend more ethanol, you're going to have a lower-priced, Finished fuel, and we certainly see that with with E15 uh, selling for 5 to 10 cents under E10. And as you add more ethanol and and get into things like flex fuels and and E85, you're seeing an even greater savings um, that more than offsets any reduction in fuel economy that you might expect to see.
1: Yeah, I've been getting E15, noticing that price difference, and I think more people will if they get that chance, right?
5: Well, that's right, and, and we're pushing hard to uh, give consumers that chance. And, and as, as your listeners will know, uh, President Trump just uh, less than a month ago announced that he's directing the EPA to make E15 available year-round and, and make the regulatory changes that, that are necessary for that to happen. Um, and so we are pushing very hard on, on the EPA to follow through on that commitment and make sure that that rulemaking is done and in place before next summer's driving season. We think if you you know we get that barrier out of the way and and retailers are allowed to sell e fifteen year round, we're gonna see a lot more of them uh, put their toe in the water
1: with e fifteen. But Jeff, are you concerned, because I certainly am, that the timeline EPA has set for getting this done really cuts it close and makes you wonder if they can get it done by june 1st of next year and even if they do it could be so close to the wire does it kind of uh take the incentive away from some of the uh, retailers to go ahead and get started on it now or are they going to take a more wait and see approach which could delay it even more
5: well we are concerned by the timeline that epa has laid out mike and and again it was october 9th when the president went to iowa and said hey I'm telling my EPA to get this done. Uh, a, a week or two later, EPA came out and said, yeah, we'll put the proposed rule out in February. Um, so why they need to wait until February to put this proposal out, it, it really has us scratching our heads. Um, you know, because you put a proposed rule out in February, then you got to allow the public to comment on it. EPA's got to look at all those comments, and then they have to write a, f- a final rule, and it has to go to the White House. And it's just there's all these bureaucratic steps that have to happen. And it would be unprecedented for EPA to get a, a rule completed in, you know, 120 days, which is basically what you have between February and, and June 1st. Um, so we, we don't understand why that timeline is, is necessary, and we're pushing on the agency to, to expedite that.
1: Yeah, any indication they might move that up?
5: Well, I think there's, uh, you know, there's hope on, on our part that they will. Um, Really, the reasoning we've heard is is they just have, you know, other things on their agenda and other things on their plate that they want to get done first. And among those things is is a uh, reset of the renewable fuel standard. They want to put a proposal out for that um, in January or sometime around there. They want to get, obviously, the 2019 RFS rule finalized and out before November 30th, which is their statutory deadline for that. And they have a few other things they're working on that they, they apparently think are, are more important than the RVP rulemaking. We've, uh, we've suggested that, uh, you know, the reset can wait. Um, let's, let's get the RVP build, uh, regulation done uh, now and, and worry about the reset rule later.
1: It does appear they are on schedule to have that, uh, the 2019 RFS uh, announcement by the end of the month, right?
5: That, that's right. We, we learned that uh, the final 2019 RFS volume rule went to the White House this week. Uh, you know, typically the White House uh, Office of Management and Budget will spend three or four weeks doing a final review before these sorts of rules go out. So that would certainly give them time um, to do their review and, and, and finalize that rule by the November 30th deadline. So we're, we're encouraged that at least it will be on time
1: yeah and then we'll see what the numbers are and then how what do those numbers mean based on how they're handling the the waiver policy right
5: well that that's right and that was our big concern with the 2018 numbers um and and frankly the 2019 proposed numbers they look great on paper 15 billion gallons of conventional biofuels is what congress uh mandated and and that's what epa wrote into these these rules um, but if they are whittling away at that number by giving small refiner exemptions after the publication of the rule, then it isn't a real number, uh, and, it, and it doesn't have teeth. Um, and that's certainly what we've seen in, in, with the 2017 number and the, and the huge wave of exemptions that EPA gave out. Um, we know that the EPA has already received 15 requests for exemptions from the 2018 requirements. Um, I think it's going to be or at least it should be uh, impossible for them to accept or, or grant any of those uh, waiver requests, uh, because the whole you know the whole thing is premised around oh high rent prices we we can't comply because rent prices are high. Well, guess what? We we have the lowest rent prices today that we've had in five or six years. Uh, rents trading below ten cents. So for any refiner to argue today. Um, that they just can't afford to comply with the RFS program uh, would just be nonsense.
1: So in other words, to basically keep uh, at the 15 billion gallon mark, they'd have to come out, if they're going to keep the current uh, waiver policy in place that they're using, they've got to come out with a higher number uh, for next year for it to be what it should be, right? Because you have to if they're going to allow uh, for those uh, waivers to be factored in.
5: Right. And that's what we've been advocating for is, hey, if you're going to, if you are going to let these small refiners out of their legal obligation to blend renewable fuels, uh, then you need to take that volume that they should have blended and give it to somebody else. Um, and there are a couple ways that, that EPA could do that. As you suggested, they could increase the, the volume um, with the expectation that, well, we're going to, you know, some of this is going to get um, subtracted. Uh, and so you end up at $15 billion no matter what, um, or just raise the, the required blending percentage for the remaining obligated parties. And that's really kind of what the regulation um, suggests should happen anyway. So uh, there are a couple ways that they could do it, but we, we absolutely agree that, that EPA should be reallocating any, any volume that they remove from the program because of these small refiner exemptions.
1: We're talking with Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. All right, Jeff, here we go again. We've got these environmental groups out there. They're petitioning EPA, <laughs> basically saying and claiming again that the environment's being harmed because we're putting more land into production in order to to uh, produce uh, biofuels. What's your response to that?
5: You know, Mike, I I feel like we had this same conversation ten years mm-hmm. ago. Um mm-hmm. on on your radio show. I mean yep. I, I thought we were done with this land use issue. I mean it's it's manufactured hysteria. Uh you know, anybody can go to the USDA website and pull up the statistics that show uh not only are corn planted acres down since two thousand seven when the RFS was expanded, uh but total crop acres are, are down. Principal crop uh, land it continues to to shrink in the US. Um, and if not for ethanol demand, uh, you know, we'd be taking good productive uh, cropland and, and seeing it go to development and, and non-agricultural uses. So if anything, um, ethanol is helping uh, to, to slow the uh, erosion and destruction of our uh, base of, of productive uh, cropland. Um, so, you know, it, again, it's, it's just more, uh, more noise. I don't really understand what what the environmental groups are are hoping to accomplish with this. I mean, the the data is clear. The additional corn that we have needed for ethanol expansion has come from increased yields, and it's come from crop switching, um, which won't be a surprise to anybody uh, who's, who's listening to your show.
1: So do you expect EPA to do anything with this petition?
5: Uh, I, I really don't. I, you know, I, I think EPA uh, is on very solid ground with the way they have approached um, the requirements of of the RFS statute with regard to land use. You know, again, EPA has to look every year at uh, what is happening with with the with the cropland in the United States, and if it is expanding beyond where it was in 2007, then yeah, they have to sit down and take a serious look at that, and 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 it, that could potentially trigger some new record-keeping requirements for farmers and and, and whatnot. Uh, but the bottom line is, as they sit down every year to look at that question, um, what they see is, no, cropland has not expanded beyond that 2007 baseline and, in fact, continues to shrink.
1: All right, Jeff, always good to talk with you. Thanks a lot.
5: Same here, Mike. Appreciate it.
1: Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. All right, coming up next, reaction to uh, EPA's decision on dicamba and what uh, some individual states, what they have to make some decisions on dicamba use next year, what they're looking at. We'll talk with the president of the Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association next on AOA Adams on Agriculture.
4: I'm Billy Sutton. As a West River cowboy, I grew up on my family ranch, working cattle, riding horses, and going to church on Sunday. But on TV, Christy Noem is trying to make me someone I'm not. I'm a pro-gun, fiscal conservative. I worked with Republicans to cut taxes and I oppose a state income tax. As governor, growing South Dakota's economy will be my top priority and I'll work with anyone to get it done, including President Trump. As governor, I'll invest in education so that our schools are preparing our kids for the future. I'll invest in career and technical training to make sure that our workers have the skills they need to get good-paying jobs so they can provide for their families. And as someone who grew up raising cattle, I'll never forget the crucial role that agriculture plays in our state's economy. I'm Billy Sutton. I see a future for South Dakota that is bright and beautiful. I know that if we work together, tomorrow can be better than today. Paid for by Sutton for South Dakota.
0: It's time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Traders are watching for developments in trade talks between the U.S. and China after President Trump signaled some optimism for a resolution yesterday on Twitter. Any new statements to the contrary could impact the markets very quickly, according to trade opinions. Meanwhile, analysts also looking ahead to next week's supply-demand report, some expecting slightly lower corn and soybean production due to crop losses from adverse weather, but We'll see could be offset by better than expected yields in areas not impacted by weather. In soybean futures, sharply higher on Thursday. We continued the advances in overnight trade. And an hour into Friday's session, 4 to 6 cents better in the beans, January 8.87 and 3 quarters, up 5 and a fraction. Corn futures are near unchanged. On the charts, December corn closed out yesterday's session with minor gains, but we finished in the lower half of the daily range. The Bulls testing higher levels around 371 on Thursday, but that level seen as a selling point on the upside. The burden said to be on corn bulls to pierce the October 29th high at 371 and a half to break the minor daily downtrend. In the wheats, we've got a narrow mix near unchanged have Traded on either side of steady so far on this Friday. Livestock at the Merck and live cattle futures were 20 to 45 cents higher as we continue to wait for cash cattle activity to develop on a live basis in Texas and in Kansas. In feeder cattle, January up a dime at 150.70. Lean hogs trending a dime to 50 cents lower. On Wall Street, the Dow is 80 points higher. December crude down 36 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network. I'm Rusty Halverson.
6: Reason number 12 why you should own a ThermoSpas hot tub? They require no attachment to your home's plumbing. Thanks to the ThermoSpas unique built-in thermofiltration system that filters the water an incredible 144 times a day, you simply fill it with a garden hose and your water stays crystal clear with very little maintenance. Call to receive a free DVD and brochure and find out how you can own a Thermospas hot tub for only a few dollars a day. Right now they're offering 0% APR financing with approved credit and a $1,000 savings coupon including free delivery, free chemicals and a cash discount.
0: Information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams.
1: All right, so EPA announces that they are extending the use of dicamba for two more years, but there are still questions that people are asking and needing answers to, and things can vary state to state. We're gonna look at the state of Illinois, and joining us now is Gene Payne, president of the Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association. Gene, thanks for joining us. Given the complaints that were still coming in this past year on dicamba, were you surprised at EPA's announcement of extending it two more years because there were questions of whether they would do that or not?
3: I, I wasn't surprised because we always thought that if they were truly going to cancel the labels, Mike, they would have canceled them back in August and sent a very early message. So as the as the summer drug on and the fall got here, we sort of waited. We knew that a decision was going to be made to issue some kind of label, I'm, I'm glad to see it's a two-year label because it does provide a little bit more certainty, but certainly it's a different label again the third year in a row, so we'll have a lot of work to do to get to understand what it says. And, of course, the labels are not even out yet, just the announcement that they're coming.
1: Yeah, I want to get into that in just a moment. But uh, I know there were there were farmers who were concerned that they would lose this uh, uh, this product, this technology, And but mm-hmm. at the same time there were still – complaints even this year still coming in how many complaints do you know of in the state of illinois this year
3: well um let's just go back to 2017 which was the first year we used it over the top on soybeans we had 246 dicamba complaints and and just bear in mind from a perspective standpoint since 1989 the total number of pesticide complaints in illinois has been around 100 every year So we had a 246 in 2017 just on dicamba. And then when you added the normal 100 on other pesticides, we were up over 300, close to 400 in 2017. Unfortunately, in 2018, we had 330 dicamba-related complaints, and it pushed our total over 500. So we uh, have a disturbing upward trend in complaints. And the unique thing about it, Mike, is that the majority of those complaints that came in came from farmers, uh, concerned about symptomology on their soybeans. Whereas in the past in Illinois, most most pesticide complaints were attributed to, you know, oh, people that move from the city out to the country. Of course, some unfortunate things where people might use the wrong product accidentally, but they've been very consistent very low. So to see that 400% increase is, was quite concerning to our industry and, of course, to the Illinois Department of Agriculture.
1: All right, so, and we know other states dealing with uh, similar situations, uh, some more than others, but uh, this was, despite, Jean, uh, concentrated Mm -hmm. efforts for education and to really address the issue. Were you surprised, given the preparation that was done, the training that was done, the education that was done, that we still had that many complaints this year?
3: Well, um, I I guess surprised maybe isn't the right word, disappointed, because we did train 11,000 applicators in the year ahead of 2018. But having said that, Mike, I think you have to take this back to, you know, the nature of this product, which has been used for 30 years, these really are the first two years that we've used it later in the season and in the summertime, and a lot of the retailers that have handled Dicamba for decades know the nature of this product, and we were reminded at the training last year that it's not a no-volatile product, it's a low-volatile product. And so more was sprayed in 2018 and so i guess it sort of shouldn't be too surprising that we still had issues because non-tolerant soybeans are the most sensitive plant to dicamba so if you did not plant extend soybeans you had symptomology and it was widespread throughout illinois even though our applicators were adamant that they followed the label and many of them had very good wind speed days which we rarely get in illinois And if you drive through central Illinois, there's wind towers everywhere, and there's a reason for that. But we had some good days in June of less than 10-mile-an-hour winds, so our applicators felt very confident and very good, and then, of course, were very disappointed to see the symptomology anyway.
1: We're talking with Gene Payne, president of the Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association. Now, as you mentioned, we're still waiting uh, to see... Uh, the actual product labels, but uh, what are some things that we do know from the announcement uh, from EPA this week uh, as far as any changes that they're they're calling for?
3: Well, we do know that they've tried to implement some type of cutoff date, and they didn't pick a calendar date because, of course, that's hard to do on a national basis, but they did put a stop spraying 45 days after planting soybeans and 60 days after cotton, and I think that that, that is uh, the intent is to get this product applied earlier in the season. In, my, in Illinois, a lot of soybeans end up planted in April. So you could technically be done spraying dicamba by May if you follow the 45 days. It will, however, still be problematic for double-crop soybeans that may not get planted until mid or late June, and then you could have this product continue to be used in, through July. So that that still would be a concern um, in a state like Illinois. The other thing that they did is they they indicated that everybody has to be an app a certified applicator in order to apply this product and we don't really know yet what that means all of our applicators and operators at the commercial in illinois that do this commercially for a living uh do have to take a test and pass a test whether they're the person making the recommendation or the person in the sprayer but our people in the sprayer are not technically called certified applicators are called licensed operators so we don't know if they'll fall under the category of being certified and therefore they're good and just have to have extra dicamba training. So until we see the labels and we sit down with our state department of ag and work through some of the technicalities of the terminology, we're just advising our members to just kind of sit tight and don't, you know, think too much about it. We'll do the best we can with whatever we are dealt with when we see the label language.
1: Yeah. So there are still questions that that need answers and, and, the EPA's announcement, uh, that's kind of the, the federal umbrella, but there, there'll be decisions made on state-by-state state basis, right?
3: Yeah, every state typically in their Pesticide Act, you know, there has provisions for the directors of agriculture to do what they feel is best for the state. You know, that came on soybeans has sort of uh, entered us into a new era of pesticide regulation because in the past the federal labels, Pretty much, were always uniformly adopted by every state. You didn't have states making wide changes to label language until we until this product came out, and it, it's a concern for the industry, Mike, because especially a lot of our members do business across state lines, and then all of a sudden, then you have to know the regulations in all your bordering states and it's into your own state. So that it's troubling from that standpoint, but on the other hand states do have local needs and local considerations, and that's something that's important for people to recognize too. And so it will be very interesting to see where this plays out. I'm a little concerned because it's already November, and we know that dicamba-specific training is going to be required again, even for all the people who took it last year, which in Illinois was 11,000. That's another major undertaking. Last year this time, we are already on our second training class, And here this year, it's November 2nd, and we don't even have a label yet to know where to get started.
1: So you're going to start off further behind than a year ago. (laughs) And with with a lot of training that will have to be done, I think, and want to emphasize again what you just said, even if you took the training last year, you're going to need to do it again this year.
3: Yes, that is correct. Now, I think there will be different ways of offering. In Illinois, we did all classroom training last year because this was such a new thing that we wanted people to have that face-to-face experience. Um, I do think there might be options for people who took it last year to do a refresher webinar, but again, the label has changed again. It's not the same label as 2018, so this is another issue that each State Department of Ag will have to decide what is best, and then, you know, we'll do our utmost best in Illinois to offer uh, ample training opportunities to farmers and commercial applicators, but again, when just getting 11,000 people through training is a massive undertaking.
1: Yeah, you're going to be trying to play catch-up all through the winter here. Um, any indication when that label will come out?
3: Well, I would hope um, November 9th is the day that the first label expired. And so they've announced that they're they're going to be renewed. But I would hope that we would have a label before November 9th so that we can really fast-track the um, getting the training organized and deciding who's going to do the training and how is it going to be delivered, and also just answering the basic question of who is a certified applicator. You know, Mike and farmers that are listening, farmers often could have their hired man or woman work under their supervision. So the farmer has the certified license to buy the restricted-use dicamba, but they didn't necessarily have to have their hired people be licensed and tested. Uh, According to this indication, they will. So you may have a lot of farm help that has to get um, certified, which means taking an exam and passing it, a license. So they have to do that first, and then they'll have to get the special dicamba training. So for a lot of people out there, there could be two training courses that you're going to have to go through this winter.
1: You know, I'm starting to think that after yesterday's announcement, (laughs) there are more questions now than answers.
3: been very busy at our office with a lot of questions. Our members are very good about wanting to get their ducks in a row as soon as possible and not wait until the last minute. So they're, they're pressing for answers, and, and IFCA is, is pressing our the registrants of the products and the Illinois Department of Ag for answers. But again, Mike, until we sit down and read those labels, which are often quite complicated and lengthy, and really digest what they say and get some guidance on these terms of what is a certified applicator. You know, we're sort of in a holding pattern. Other than we know, the technology will be available in 2019 for those who meet all the criteria to apply it.
1: So you'll be getting that information out as soon as you the information you need, yes. then you can get the process started.
3: Yes, you bet, Mike. And our, our website is if. And we already, um, you know, posted some of the applicator training dates on there for people who want to make sure that their current license doesn't expire before December 31st of this year. So um, we'll always be working on that. And as soon as we know, uh, we will move forward. And, you know, we have a tremendous relationship with the Illinois Department of Ags, who is our state lead agency. And I know they will, as soon as they have good decisions about what they need to do as a state regulatory agency. They'll get that to us, and we'll get it disseminated through the industry.
1: Yeah, of course, the same scenario playing out in a lot of other states as well. Uh, Jean, thank you for the update. Good to talk with you again. And uh, when that label gets out, let's talk again when you have more specifics, okay?
3: All right. Thanks a lot, Mike.
1: Take care. Jean Payne, president of the Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association. Be answered on DICAM but we know the answer to the big question: uh, Will it be allowed to be used for the next couple of years? That answer is yes, but there are some, uh, still some details, as she said, to work out, and we'll keep you up to date on those. All right, stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. We paid less for our Craftmatic today than we
6: did 20 years ago. So if you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and information. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Discover Craftmatic for less, up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Call
1: 1-800-318-7903. That's 1-800-318-7903. 1-800-318-7903. Call now.
7: I'm here to tell you that your options for getting out of debt have never been better. How do I know? Because I'm Howard Devorkin, the founder of Consolidated Credit. For nearly two decades, we've helped over five million people just like you. And every time we help
1: someone, they all say the same thing. Why didn't I call sooner? If you owe too much money on your credit cards and you feel that you'll never be able to pay it off,
7: the hard part is over. Call Consolidated Credit now, 1 800 489
5: 7204. 1 800 489 7204. That's 1 800
7: 489 7204. 5701 Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Licensed Debt Management Service Provider, Vermont and New York Banking Departments, Maryland 49, Oregon DM 80031.
4: South Dakota is a veterans state. I come from Hot Springs, which is a veteran's town. We had some questions on the VA. It was closing. We had people that used the VA saying, I got to have it. If I don't have it, I'm going to die. We had people whose parents and children used the VA saying, we need it. And when we started the battle with the VA, Christine Ohm was the first person, anybody of any authority, to come on board. She has carried the battle like a torch, leading the way for everybody else. For the veterans of this state, Christine Ohm is our girl. She stood up for us when it comes to the VA in Hot Springs. And that's not just Hot Springs. That's across the entire state. And she gained nothing, absolutely nothing. She got no money in her campaign. She didn't have us marching down the street with signs for her. She did it because it was the right thing to do. That's Christy Noem. And that's the person I want to be governor. Christy Noem, tested, proven, conservative for governor. Paid for by Christy for governor.
7: It's a bully This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org.
4: I'm Billy Sutton. As a West River cowboy, I grew up on my family ranch, working cattle, riding horses, and going to church on Sunday. But on TV, Kristi is trying to make me someone I'm not. I'm a pro-gun, fiscal conservative. I worked with Republicans to cut taxes, and I oppose a state income tax. As governor, growing South Dakota's economy will be my top priority, and I'll work with anyone to get it done, including President Trump. As governor, I'll invest in education so that our schools are preparing our kids for the future. I'll invest in career and technical training to make sure that our workers have the skills they need to get good paying jobs so they can provide for their families. And as someone who grew up raising cattle, I'll never forget the crucial role that agriculture plays in our state's economy. I'm Billy Sutton. I see a future for South Dakota that is bright and beautiful. I know that if we work together, tomorrow can be better than today. Paid for by Sutton for South Dakota. Information
0: America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture.
6: Now, back to Mike Adams.
1: Well, today we wrap up our series with um, Aristo Life Science, looking at ways to prepare for next year's cropping season and ways to... Uh, Sure. the best, do everything you can to uh, have a good result at the end of the year and looking at the different ways of building that foundation for a good crop year. And uh, we're going to continue with that today, wrap it up uh, with the uh, North American Product Development Manager for Biosolutions and Innovative Nutrition for Arista Life Science. Dave Quartz joins us. Dave, thanks for being with us.
8: Well, thank you, Mike, for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Okay, as we're looking at... Uh, uh, nutrition for corn and wheat and looking at having that nutrition available to the plant throughout the growing season uh you have a new product right that will help uh help assure that uh, nutrition uh that is needed for those plants
8: yeah we do it's a, a product that has just been launched um called raise 032 it is a foliar nutrition product that um is uh, designed to help balance the uptake of those essential nutri- nutrients um, at key crop life cycles. You know, during the, the physiological development of, of crops, and you know the the, the whole function of rays is to is to really promote higher nutrient uptake of those that are available to increase crop vigor, and it, that ultimately leads to a more robust plant. That will have higher tolerance to environmental stress factors, you know, uh, you know, biotic, abiotic stress factors, those types of things that every field seems to, you know, encounter every year.
1: Well, I know a lot goes into product development, time and resources. Uh, tell us what went into the development of Raise 32
8: Well, uh, believe it or not, this this product and the, and and the way that it's come to market has been a a fairly long journey. Um, It has been in development trials um, globally for many, many years, and here in the U.S. We've recently, um, in the last couple of years, started seriously within my own trials focusing on understanding um, how the product works within specific crops at specific timings, doing the rate titrations and making sure that we have a very, very sound um, recommendation at the grower level to make sure that, you know, when they use it at the proper timing and at the proper rates that they get the results that they're looking for.
1: And that's a big part of it, right? The proper use, and you got to have a, a, a good management plan to be most effective.
8: Yeah, and, and, and so, like, for instance, with raised specifically in corn, and let's let's focus on that just a little bit. Um, you know, where we've targeted that application is that that V5 that timing, I guess is the best way to put it, is that post-herbicide timing that most growers are going to be running across the field with a glyphosate or glufosinate or maybe a dicamba and then list whatever it might be. And there's a critical stage that happens during that growing uh, stage of the life of corn, and that's when maximum kernel rounds are being developed um, in the corn plants. And so we want to try to mitigate stress um, at that period of time. We want to try to make sure that the plant has all of the nutrients necessary, um, be it nitrogen or phosphorus or whatever that might be out there, that it's got that available so that it can go ahead and set those maximum kernel rounds that's genetically designed to do. And then once that's done, then, you know, there's a lot of things that happened before that. <laughs> before the 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 actual crop comes off but you know if you start with the maximum kernel rounds and a really robust plant then you know that's going to lead you to them being able to maximize your yield
1: all right so you've launched raise 032 it'll be available next year then
8: yes it'll be available um for sale beginning you know uh actually right now there i think the reps are out talking about it to retailers all across the midwest and and uh upper plains and uh, I think they're excited about it. We're excited about it. We're you know, starting to get data in from our development trials this year, as well as uh, the growers that did some side-by-side work for us. And right now, everything is on track and delivering the brand promise.
1: I was going to ask you, what do those tests, those results uh, tell you?
8: Well, in corn, we're consistently getting about six and a half bushels um, right now from you know the multi-year data that we're getting. Um, in wheat, it's about four-and-a-half to five bushels, and so, you know, those are both, you know, very nice um, increases for the amount of uh, product and the timing that it's going out there. Um, I think one of the interesting things about, um, in addition to the yield increase, which, of course, everybody's interested in doing, but, you know, one of the things that you get when you apply raise and corn is, you know, we quantitatively measured, you know, a 21-and-a-half percent increase in root length. Sixteen percent increase in root area, so those type of things, you know, can you know, are which is what's important to taking up mineral elements as well as water, go toward you know the overall health of that plant and the overall robustness of that plant to withstand those stresses. So it's partly about yield, but it's also about making sure that we've got a plant that's standing there and uh, is able to do what it needs to do when it goes into the to the season
1: through the season. So, another tool in the farmer's toolbox for next year, Raise 032 Foliar Nutrition for Corn and Wheat. Been talking with Dave Quartz, who is North American Product Development Manager for Bio Solutions and Innovative Nutrition for Arista Life Science. Dave, thanks for joining us and uh, bringing us up to date on this. Thank you.
8: Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it, everybody. Have a great weekend.
1: All right. Well, yeah, a weekend where we change those clocks. Remember this weekend, fall back an hour. Don't forget to make uh, that change. Looking ahead next week, going to have a busy week. Uh, a lot of it uh, will be in focused around the National Association of Farm Broadcasting Convention in Kansas City. I'll be broadcasting from there Thursday and Friday of next week. Also want to mention that coming up on Monday, we're going to have a look at these uh trade issues, what's going on with China, and of course there's a little bit of optimism right now, a little bit of hope, uh, you know, with upcoming talks uh, uh, between President Trump and the Chinese leaders, and that maybe, maybe that uh, opens the door for the possibility of getting something done. Hey, we've been down this road before where we get our hopes up, but uh, right now, any any glimmer of light, any bit of positive news is welcome, so we'll see what comes of that. But we're going to talk about that and an assessment of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, just what's in there, how good is it for agriculture, What? where did we gain, uh, how much did we gain, some of those types of things. We'll be talking with Paul Dracic, longtime trade analyst. Uh, he's a managing partner for DTV Associates. He'll give us a really closer look at uh, these trade issues coming up on Monday. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for joining us on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.